1: Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and today I am so happy to welcome Marie Cheslick to Voices. Voices. Marie is a registered nurse, a certified sommelier in the Court of Master Sommeliers in the USA, and she's the founder of Slick Wines. She was named as one of Wine Enthusiast's Future 40 Peacemakers for 2023. So thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today.
0: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's a huge pleasure. I was very excited when I saw you make the Masters list. That was really cool. And I'm very interested in what you do. So let's get the ball rolling here. I want to help our listeners understand a bit about your backstory, which is a great one. You grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, which always just makes me laugh. Definitely (laughs) not what we can honestly call sort of a high-end alcoholic beverage. And I know about this because I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so not far away. How did you go from being a Wisconsin girl to a registered nurse to where you are now in the wine world? How was that path? What happened?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, you know, Paps Blue Ribbon has a blue ribbon, so it's worth something to somebody. I don't know who. I don't know who gave them the blue ribbon, but, you know, we should start giving out blue ribbons and wine as well. But <laughs> uh, So, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, didn't really grow up drinking wine at all, and you know how this goes. It's more of a blue-collar beer town in Milwaukee. But what you get with blue-collar beer towns is just a very down-to-earth demeanor with everything, especially being in the Midwest. People are friendly and people are nice, uh, and people are also a little stuck in their ways, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But I think growing up and getting into wine is, yeah, sort of a contradiction from growing up in the Midwest, And growing up that way has influenced a lot of how I have pursued my career, um, whether it is through nursing or through hospitality. And now what I do with Slick Wines, it kind of just gives me this grounded demeanor with everything that I do, because I think about talking to someone from Milwaukee or someone from Wisconsin, someone who doesn't really have any idea of whether it's the wine world or the healthcare world of there's preconceived notions of things, but I think those things have helped me in my career immensely. So I mean, starting out in nursing was really more pragmatic than anything, and I wormed my way into wine world. You want me to dive into how I got into there?
1: Absolutely, yes, definitely. I mean, I've I've read your backstory, but I'm not sure everybody who's listening has. So I would love for you to dive in there because it's it's pretty fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't fun at the time, but we, we finally got there and we're at this point and it feels good. But so, I mean, I went into nursing school because I really like people and I really like connecting with people. And being a nurse seemed like a really pragmatic way of doing that. Within nursing school, I worked as a host in a restaurant part-time. And it was this, for anyone who lives in Chicago, it's Hub 51. And it's really just like, a downtown bro bar is the best way I can describe this, where people come in, they get rowdy, they have a good time. Uh, maybe you'd bring your mom to dinner there, but it wasn't really a place that had a, you know, Michelin Star or James Beard Award or anything about that. But if I told myself if I liked being a host in sort of this insane downtown restaurant, that I probably would like pursuing restaurant in more of a career and more of a thoughtful way. So I graduated from nursing school. I worked as a nurse and it's it's okay. You know, I told myself if I didn't have anything else I know I wanted to do with my life, I would probably be okay with being a nurse. There's lots of different paths you can go. There's lots of different ways you can work as a nurse. So... unless let's be fair, you'll always have a job. I mean, 100%. I mean, I maintain licensure just to have it because I'm like, well, if Slick blows up, you know, in the bad way, <laughs> at least I'll have this ultimate backup plan, right? So... Yeah, well, I'm thankful to have it, and it allows me to take more risks too. Because I go, well, I should just try the risky thing. Because again, uh, I'll just be a Botox nurse if all of this doesn't work out, and that's fine too.
1: Oh my God, a Botox nurse. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but of course, there oh, must of be. Of course.
0: Yeah. You know, people love Botox probably as much as they love wine, and you could probably combine the two together. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds terrifying. Oh my God.
0: Well, that's why I'm there. I'm here to guide the I'm here to guide the situation. It'll be good. So I left the nursing gig in pursuit of a sort of I said, well, if I'm going to do this restaurant thing, I should go for the highest caliber. I should just go for the gold and work for a Michelin Star restaurant. I ended up getting a job at a one Michelin Star restaurant here in Chicago and started as a server and worked my way up to wine director. I felt like wine, Was a good way to make a career out of being in restaurants because I knew I didn't want to work back a house. That just wasn't my style. I like cooking, uh, but I like cooking as a hobby. I like cooking dinner. I don't like cooking as my job. And I didn't really want to be a server forever. And so,
1: no, too right. I don't think anybody wants to be a server forever.
0: <laughs> Depending on where you are in the world, like in Europe, there are career servers, and it, but it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different culture. I felt like wine was the best way for me to go. Okay, like let's improve my skill set. Let's like add another tool to my toolbox for hospitality. And I ended up just really enjoying it. I enjoyed again this connection with people and hearing people's stories. And there is a science aspect with making wine, much like there is with healthcare. So there was a lot of parallels that I saw that I wanted to pursue within that. Uh, And I was getting this sort of hands-on trial by fire training in the Michelin star restaurant. And I was also taking the certified exam through the court of master sommeliers. So I was kind of doing my school as well as my (laughs) quote unquote internship or just working in the restaurant. So I kind of got this two pronged approach to wine that really expanded my horizons, I think, fairly quickly. So I'm grateful for all those experiences, no matter how hard they were and how many late nights it was, but it was really fulfilling.
1: Well, I love the connection that you've drawn between the nursing side of your life and the wine side. You know, there is a science parallel, and I hadn't really thought about that before, but it's interesting to see that connection. And especially in light of the fact that, you know, we all know that health awareness is throwing a big spotlight on alcohol, particularly in the States at the moment, but it's crossing over to Europe too now. I'm just wondering how you balance, you know, your nursing background, the science of that, you know, with kind of a conflicting possibly um, wine career, you know, give us your thoughts about why alcohol and wine in particular has become such a diversive topic lately. It's really, it, it's quite strange to listen to people and read articles, as we all do, about this potential for, you know, treating wine the way that we treated cigarettes in the 70s, you know, big labels and warnings and things on it. So how do you sort of Balance your nursing science with this health alert for wine. Uh,
0: (laughs) Cognitive dissonance. Uh, No, it's. (laughs) I think it's divisive because there are truths to both sides of it. Like you could argue that there's good and bad to drinking and not drinking, right? And I think if you want to look at both sides, right, I understand why people don't want to drink. It makes people feel better. It makes people quote unquote healthier. From From all the science that we have gotten recently, you know, some chemical compounds within wine is good for you, but the alcohol itself is not good for you. And you could get those chemicals through eating other foods and doing other things. So people would say, well, if I'm looking at strictly from a health standpoint, uh, maybe it's not really the way to go. But we live in a world of contradictions. We are people, we (laughs) contradict ourselves all the time, whether it's physiologically, psychologically, or culturally. And I think about Working in the hospital, and I would see marathon runners, people who ate super clean whole foods, things like that. And with this guy, one guy in particular, a marathon runner came in and got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And that's not fair right? It's not right. It's a, it shouldn't happen to people like that, but it does every day. And on the other side of the coin, there's people who smoke and drink every day and they die of old age or die of a car accident, right? Something completely unrelated. And so physiologically, I think there's just contradictions within that too, where it's like, if nursing really taught me anything, it's that <laughs> if you want to be fit, if you want to be healthy, if you want to eat whole foods and that makes you feel good, you should do it because it makes you feel good or makes you feel confident, not necessarily because it's going to make you live longer, because that's not really a guarantee. And even on the other side of that, this cultural side, right, where I think about drinking is such a wonderful way of connecting with people. And you can drink wine without getting drunk, right? Like you can, you can just enjoy a glass of wine. You can enjoy a couple beers. and. I think even culturally, culturally, these contradictions, I think looking at other countries is very interesting as well. Turkey, particularly Istanbul, uh, is a country where it's more than 90% Muslim. And within the Muslim religion, you are not supposed to drink. But the culture of Turkey is longer and stronger than the culture of Islam. So even though you'll have you'll have Turkish Muslims in Turkey drinking wine, because that is part of the culture. And that's a contradiction as well. But people go, eh, you know, that's just the way it is. And that's how I feel kind of about wine, where it's wherever stance you want to take, there's there's validity in all sides. But I am more on the side of, look, we're all going to die anyway. Um, I know I'm a responsible adult who can drink a glass of wine with dinner. And not only that, but have it be my career and Really connect people and find deeper meaning within that. And if people want to subscribe to that, awesome. Follow along, you know. But if you don't want to subscribe, that's also fine and valid and suits your life better. So I think it just, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I think you know, there's there is space for everybody's uh, you know method of living their life. I mean, I know personally, I wouldn't want to live longer if I couldn't drink wine. So you know, there's there's that as well. But I, I think you've hit something really important the connections that can be made you know the history the culture behind wine it's not just you know an alcohol delivery device it's um, it's something that has played a part in many many cultures for such a long time that it's hard to divide that past you know from from the alcoholic drink that may or may not be in your glass so I think it's going to be a hot topic for quite a while, and I really dread the moment that we lose this beautiful history of what is a very basic uh, drink, you know, made from grapes and nothing else, because of, you know, fear-mongering over health. And I think you're right as well about being a responsible adult. Not everyone is, but, you know, those, those of us who are, I think having the opportunity to you know make our own decisions and and not limit our opportunities is important so it's it's a very interesting discussion and i know it's kind of a throw you under the bus moment when i ask people about this because it's we're all still navigating this so it's interesting but i think your perspective as a nurse and as a wine professional is particularly unique and i i like how you have kind of boiled it down to something that you can live with and that you can discuss and making room for other people's views. It's important.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's no mystery that Gen Z is more on the non-alcoholic train. And I think that's fine and good. But I think also what I see on the internet is also different than what I see in Chicago and people I talk to on a daily basis. Like a lot of the people I talk to who are Gen Z, younger generation, are really interested in learning about wine but not in a way of just drinking but in the way that probably you and I and anyone else listening to this podcast relates to where they're like oh like I've never been to Italy like I can't afford going to Italy but the closest I can get is drinking Italy right yeah bottle bottle tourism we call it <laughs> that's right <laughs> passport with a bottle so I think yeah I mean the, the Gen Z that's coming up that is saying that alcohol is poison, it's all cyclical. It's like fashion. It's like anything. It's like, it's all going to kind of come around to the next generation, but I'm here and I'm on board for the people who want to explore that with me. And if you don't, that's awesome.
1: Well, I'm, I'm with you. I'm on that train. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) perfect. Come along. Let's go together.
1: I want to cycle back to, to what you said, you know, sort of talking about your backstory, you know, your path into wine was through the restaurant industry and you were working, you know, on the floor when you were in nursing school. And I'm just wondering sort of when was the moment, you know, what drove you to apply to the Court of Master Sommeliers? And, you know, of course, we've all heard in the past few years, um, the scandals, the misogyny. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I'm just wondering, you know obviously, you are a strong and smart woman with a scientific background. What was your experience like when you were studying there and becoming certified, and what drove you to actually take that step to say okay i'm i'm gonna I'm going into the court of master Sommelier
0: yeah, I think that's a fair question too, with all things considered in the Julia Moskin article at the new york times and You know, I pursued court of master sommeliers at the time because I like structured learning. I like going to college. I like having a schedule. I like being held to expectations by other people and meeting them. And wine is a little Wild Westy. And I also like that aspect as well but I felt like that doing this more kind of traditional quote unquote schooling with wine would help me understand it better. And frankly, I think people also see the court of master sommeliers from a general standpoint, like the normal everyday person would say, oh, like that's impressive. That's good. It makes me trust you more. Right. So I'm, you know, in some ways I'm proud to wear that badge and still have it. And that's what pursued me to do it. And I don't regret it at all. I think it's really helped my career a lot. And it's also helped me understand wine better and helped me teach it better. There are some things within the court that are good sort of standardized ways to look at wine. And I think that's a good jumping ground to be like, okay, this is what kind of quote unquote you're supposed to do. Now this is what I would do instead. right? So I'm very glad I've done that. But yeah. I mean, with what's been happening and what has, has happened, and I know they're doing a lot to change it. They have Emily Wines running it now, uh, which is amazing. And she is great. And I know they're trying to do a lot of, to sort of fix the wrongs that have happened in the past. Um, but when I was taking quartermaster of master Sommeliers, this all was actively happening, but I had no idea. I was really in my own bubble. And I guess I'm grateful for that in my own ways where The Chicago wine community is small but mighty and everyone is pretty friendly. And I don't know if this is a Midwestern disposition type thing or just sort of the lack of pretentious wine culture in general, Uh, as opposed to maybe if I took this in Napa, right? And I'm sort of exposing myself more to like Napa winemakers and I'm not I'm kind of slam dunking on Napa here, but like, it's just a very different world.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, taking this level of wine course in a place that is not wine centric, you know, where that you are not surrounded by vineyards. You know, I live in Verona. I live just outside of town. So right near Valpolicella. So I understand the whole Napa scene in an Italian way. But I think doing wine courses, I did mine in London. I'm a sommelier too, and did, did that in Rome as well. And it wasn't wine centric. And there's something a little bit freeing about doing a wine course that's important to you in a place that is not wine centric.
0: <laughs> I agree. And I think uh, I definitely agree with that. And I think that was really important to me pursuing it as well. Maybe if I did get more pushback, I would say this isn't for me, but because I would just was surrounded by very supportive people. Um, my boss at the time too, at the restaurant was incredibly supportive. He's really like a mentor to me. Um, and in that way, and you know, that way it's lucky, right. That I was kind of at the right place at right time and not to discredit all the things that happens within the court that shouldn't have happened. You know, people shouldn't you know, men should not be abusing their power on women for something that they want. That's objectively horrible. And I'm glad that the court is really trying their best, but I don't always recommend it to people, not just because of the misogyny and this and the accusations that have happened, But because a sommelier, in the truest sense, is really someone who works in a restaurant. And most people I interact with don't have plans on working in restaurants, don't have plans of opening a bottle of sparkling wine table side as quietly as possible in a counterclockwise direction, right? That's not the goal for a lot of people. And so it's like, it's a little, it's very specific. And I think people look at it because it's the one we talk about the most. But I usually nudge people in other directions, whether it's WSET or um, just like learning on your own or using slick wines as sort of a guide to help learning about wine uh, in a more approachable way. So I just think it's not really for everyone from a career standpoint.
1: Well, I agree with that. And we're going to cycle back to why um, in a minute, because you know, both of us are educators and both of us feel pretty strongly about the way that wine is taught. So I'll park that for just a second. And let's talk about slick wines, because, you know, you, you were hugely successful in your hospitality career. You were, you know, the wine director at Elski, you know, Michelin starred restaurant in Chicago, as you said. Uh, you worked your way up and you sort of chucked that, um, to swerve into the educational side of things. You founded slick wines in 2020, you know, mid COVID. So what gave you the idea? Because it was risky time to start a new business and to chuck a career where you were doing, you know, very, very well. So what gave you the idea and, and how did you make that transition?
0: Yeah. So. You know, I was really riding high in my career right before COVID happened.
1: Weren't we all? Weren't we all?
0: I know, how convenient for everyone to be, you know, just demolished by COVID. But, you know, this uh, clever little nursing degree thing. I go, well, like, yeah, this sucks and all the restaurants are closed, but at least I can work, you know, and at least I can do something and make money and survive.
1: And help people. Not not, not to turn your nose up at And help people. Let's just say that.
0: Yes, of course. I mean, that's always sort of the, why else would you be a nurse if you didn't want to help people as well, too? So I guess, yeah, it's to say the quiet part out loud. Yes, I also wanted to help people during this time. Uh, I think about the uh, nurses during the 80s, like HIV epidemic, right, where that was... People were scared to work as a nurse then, too, because people didn't know how HIV worked. And they were like, you know, is it by contact? Is it airborne? And, you know, later we learned that none of those things are true, uh, but just as scary of a time. And I really respect all those nurses. And I was like, you know, if I could if I could do that with my life, like I would just feel really proud of myself and the things I've accomplished. So went back to the yeah nursing COVID workforce, which was. Uh, objectively, really, really hard, really challenging. I would come home, my now wife, um, just like in tears and just didn't know what to do. Knew I couldn't uh, obviously go back to work in restaurants because they were closed. But as I was working in the hospital during covid I was really asking myself too, like, do I really want to work in restaurants again? Is that really like where I get my the most satisfaction? Because as hard as it was working as a nurse during COVID, it was also incredibly fulfilling. And I, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm kind of gone back and forth between like where I find value within my nursing career versus where I find value in my wine career. And I was just not really convinced that working in restaurants was really the best thing for me and really the nail in the coffin was that I was having a meeting with my my bosses the owners of the restaurant and I was really trying hard to implement a lot of covid you know, implications being like, can we get plexiglass in front of the host stand? Are we going to get N95 masks? And if we are, where are we getting them? Because hospitals aren't even getting them. And I was pushing hard for a safer work environment in the restaurant. And, you know, they didn't say it out loud, but uh, they fired me because they said I wasn't happy there anymore. And I said, OK, uh, heard that, understood. <laughs> so what do I do now? You know, like, do I work in another restaurant? Do I, what's my next step? And I just knew immediately, I'm like, I need to create my own path within this because I don't know how long this COVID thing is going to stick around for, but I want to continue working in wine. But uh, restaurants are obviously not a place where it is stable to do that. And so I created Slick as a way to connect with people through wine and through a very safe environment. So that's really how Slick got started. And it was August of 2020 when that happened. So it's been a little more than three years now.
1: Well, Slick is very cool. So anybody who doesn't know about Slick wines, S-L-I-K from the from the second half of your surname, you need to check it out because the mission is to focus on the average everyday drinker who wants to use wine as a way to connect with people and see new places and enrich their lives. You know, all the things that you've been talking about, obviously the things you're passionate about and, and I am too. So, you know, you've come up with this idea. It in a very difficult time and struck out on your own and you're now creating this really interesting very accessible interactive way of getting people at the wine table which is kind of my mantra I want to make the longest table with as many seats as I can possibly get and get them all filled so love that how are how are you creating a safe space you know an, an accessible space for people who want to get into the wine world without being intimidated you know we talked about wine language can be intimidating you know wine lists can be intimidating how are you making this safe space for people to really feel you know comfortable and to learn are you enjoying this podcast don't forget to visit our youtube channel mama jumbo shrimp for fascinating videos covering stevie kim and her travels across italy and beyond meeting winemakers eating local foods and
0: taking in the scenery Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that's a question that everyone is sort of asking within the wine world and answering within their own right. I think it's a very exciting time for wine right now because I think all these conversations are turning into action slowly but surely. And really the way that I do this, everyone's going to give you a different answer, obviously, but the way I do this is very similar to um, how I worked as a nurse where it's, again, so many parallels like... Uh, diabetes <laughs> can be very complicated. Uh, from an MD, from a medical doctor standpoint, you can get really into the nitty gritty. Uh, and wine is the same way. You can really get into the nitty gritty, whether it's like, Um, fermentation methods or clones, you know, like you can really and they're all important. It's not negating the importance of this, uh, but I feel like people just don't care about the nitty gritty all the time, at least in my community and the people I talk to.
1: We call it the geeky stuff here. (laughs)
0: That geeky stuff.
1: Not everybody wants the geeky stuff.
0: Not everyone. I would say most people don't want the geeky stuff. And I would say people like you and me and people who listen to this podcast are here for the geeky stuff. And you found that, you know, and you found your people.
1: Oh, completely. This is geek central, for sure.
0: I am in the geek mecca, right? And I can feel it and it feels good. But the people I like to teach and the people I interact with the most, being Chicago-based, being Midwest, and just being who I am. I would rather give you the too long, didn't read, Um, but in a way that doesn't do it a disservice, but in a way that makes you feel like that you can understand it. And that's the first stepping stone to that. Right. So, again, you can get into geek zone with the uh, diabetes metaphor, but you really want to give people, okay, you now have diabetes. Welcome. Here's your really easy to read pamphlet. Um, I'm going to teach you how to take your blood glucose, and we're not going to overwhelm you. You know, We're just going to start there. And don't be scared. Don't be scared. Yeah, don't be scared. Yeah, exactly.
1: And you're not alone. I think those two things are important no matter what you're teaching someone about. You know, I've been a teacher for a long time, and telling people look you came you came to me you either have this curiosity or in the case of diabetes you have this problem and you want some information and you want to learn and my job is to make sure you you know aren't scared and you don't feel like you're doing this on your own so i completely agree with all of that and it's working for you like working big time you know slick has 26000 followers on instagram alone and sort of 90,000, almost 100,000 followers across all your other channels. So what is it that you are doing that you think is so attractive that is working? You know, how are you getting these followers? Obviously, you're a nice person with a great personality and you're passionate, and that's why we're talking today. But not everybody can turn their awesome personality into a booming business. So what are you doing that's
0: working? I ask myself this all the time. Um, (laughs) uh, Getting myself in front of a camera and being comfortable with that. I mean, a lot of the things that I create are on a video format. I don't do a lot of writing. I mean, I write scripts out for my videos sometimes, but uh, really the video format is, is king in my opinion. And so getting in front of a camera, learning how to talk, going on podcasts and thinking about how do I want to convey what I'm conveying um, in a way that feels genuine and approachable. And what feels genuine to me is a lot of humor and usually a lot of dark humor. Um, and I got that probably from working in the hospital. Because when you sit and watch people die all the time, like you can either internalize that and be like, wow, this is horrible, or you just do what every other doctor, nurse does and just like, just not take it so seriously. And, you know, I'm using these extreme hospital examples because I think if you can go from one extreme of seeing these things, and then you look at wine and you go oh it's just wine like who care like who cares like this is so true and
1: and that is a great thing to say it's only wine it's not brain surgery it's not
0: we're not saying i mean i would joke that at the restaurant too i'd say it's just dinner we're not saving lives like it's okay if you ring in the order wrong it's okay if you spilled wine on the table like it's just dinner it's okay And so if I can take that sort of attitude and put it in a video and just be my genuine self, which is uh, apparently entertaining because people like watching me talk about it, then I feel like that's a win because I can do what feels real to me and people get value out of that. And I can't think of really anything better in life than doing that. And Slick has allowed me to do that.
1: Well, it's it is a great, great thing that you're creating, and I know you've got a series of books coming out under development about how to read a wine label. And I really love this concept because this is another totally intimidating thing. You know, a lot of restaurants you walk in, they hand you a wine list. It's like the size of a Bible, and it, it's it can really be off-putting. Suddenly, you you just want sparkling water, and you don't want to think about it. So you know tell our listeners you know how did you come up with this concept and how are the books going to work and when are they going to be available what's what's the deal with these books because i think a lot of people are going to be very interested i know i am because they'll be a great teaching tool
0: yeah well thank you and i really feel like wine labels are the only thing that most people go off of when they're picking a bottle of wine Generally in a grocery store setting when you can, or a wine shop setting where you can see the label. I've worked some shifts at my friend's wine shop. I'm not really retail oriented, but uh, I help out at Bottles Up in Chicago, if any of you are familiar. Um, And just having people come in and seeing how people interact in a wine purchasing setting And of course, I'm there to help, but sometimes I'll just leave people to their own devices and see what they do. And then I will ask them, I'm like, oh, have you had this? And they said, no, I just like the label. And you're like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> what do you like
1: about? I love the honesty. I love the honesty.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it's great, you know, and I I think that's wonderful, and people can admit that. And I go, well, that's great. What did you like about the label? And sometimes you're like, oh, there's a cat on it. You're like, okay, great. That's duh. Everyone likes a cute cat on a label. And then you go, well, okay, that's kind of interesting. If like people are looking at labels and making decisions based on that, like with a little bit of education, and I think every sommelier knows this, where it's like the words on the label are the most important part. And it will tell you what the wine will taste like without even opening it. So it's like, huh, okay. Like if I can take some of the stuff I learned working in retail, working in the restaurant, working, and then like taking quarter master sommeliers and sort of slickify it (laughs) and make a small book out of this, um, this could be a really practical tool for people to learn about I I equate it like doing math homework Uh, and many of you maybe who have done math homework, you're kind of like (laughs) crying with your dad at one o'clock in the morning trying to figure out all these math problems. But the thing about math problems is that you just do the same thing over and over and over and over again until you get it. And I think reading a wine label is the same way. So it's just like, let's have a glossary of common words and then let's just give a ton of examples and break down what every single word means on a label. And then people will start seeing patterns and people will start understanding and go, oh, Cote de Rhone, that looks familiar. Like, let's talk more about that. Or, you know, I guess it's an Italian wine podcast, so I should use Italian examples. But it's really just trying to connect people with the visceral reaction they have when they see a wine label and go, okay, if like I can give people a little bit of a tool and a little bit of a push in one direction, people will start making decisions based on the actual words and not just like the pictures on the label. And then that makes people more confident and just gets people and people who work in you know restaurants or retail more excited because then they'll have better language to say, oh, well, I tried. I tried. I've never had a white wine from Sicily, but I love that. And you go, okay, great. Like that's way more of a headway than saying like, oh, uh, I like... I like a zippy white wine. And it's like, yeah, that's helpful. But it would be really cool if we were all a little more on the same page and closing that gap a bit. So that's the goal with these books.
1: Well, I think it's a great goal. And, and I would love to see it sort of be turned on its head and become a tool for producers as well. Because, um, you know, America, you're a little bit more fortunate with more modern labels. Okay, you're a lot more fortunate with modern labels. But Italian producers and, and producers around the world, I think sometimes... You know the the temptation to get a little up yourself and use your family crest and you know funny fonts and all these sorts of things. There isn't a lot of words on the label that that are helpful. And you know, with Italian wines, sometimes they're just all in Italian. They're not in English, and it does make it more difficult for consumers outside of Italy, which is what they all want their wines to be drunk outside of Italy, uh, to to figure out what the heck is happening. So. I love the fact that these books are going to be a really helpful tool for consumers, but I'd love to see them be turned on their head and become a tool also for producers, you know, to figure out how to market better, how to make smarter labels, how to be more attractive to people who are new to the to the wine world and new to wine drinking and catch their attention while they're excited and while they're you know figuring out what they like and what they don't like. So I love the idea of these books. I, I think they'll be a great success. When are they gonna be ready?
0: That's a good question. So <laughs> I do have a literary agent, which is promising. The proposal is done. So we're kind of shopping it around to publishers right now. So I've never done anything like this before. So I'm kind of learning this as I go as well. But essentially the literary agent is your middleman to get you connected with publishers like Penguin Random House or other ones that I can't th- think of right now. But his job is to help me find a home for it. So we are hopefully going to find a home for it in the next month or so. And then hopefully by the end of next year would be the goal. So we're have a we a little ways away, but you can follow the journey on Slick Wines if you are interested in hearing more about that.
1: That's perfect. Um, as I said, I'm gonna be talking to producers I work with about this concept. I I try now, but um, having something actually printed that makes them see that I am not talking nonsense will be very, very useful. So
0: Yeah, I'll help validate you for sure.
1: Awesome. I can use all the validation I can get. Uh,
0: you know, and I was thinking about it too, because I'm in I've been talking with Cobrand a lot about this book too, and they're um, you know, they're a wine importer here in America and they kind of get around this because they feel the same way. They're like, okay, yeah, we have these like Italian brands that like they don't want to change the label because there is so much history behind it. We understand that. But like as the importer, you have a lot of control on the back label. And so like they're kind of work around with this. And I've seen this most commonly with French wines and like the Louis Jadot wines, which are wildly popular. If you turn If you turn it over, at least in the American market, I don't know what it looks like in the Italian market, but they tell you very plainly like, this is the grape, this is the region, uh, and this is what this wine will taste like. And I'm like, honestly, that's all most people really want anyway. And like, if you can't convince the winemaker to change the label for many valid reasons, it's kind of an interesting thought to go to the importer or the distributor instead and be like, look, if you really want to sell more of this wine, like, yes, I'm doing my part by trying to teach consumers, but yeah, we need to kind of close this gap a little more, particularly, yes, with Italian wines, which are notoriously intimidating and we all know this.
1: Completely, completely. So, well, I'm, I'm wishing you all the best of luck with finding a publisher and getting those books out because we need them. We need them in our life.
0: Tell the publishers that. Email your publisher today. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Both of us are, are wine educators quite clearly. You know, we've, we've been talking about this and sort of skirting around the issue throughout this whole conversation and I just want to get your opinion. I think I know what you're going to say, and I think I'm going to agree with you. What, what do you see in the future of wine education? You know, we've we've talked about, you know, rigid language keeping people out, complicated labels keeping people out. You know, what direction would you like to see wine education take? You know, do you think conventional certificates like WSET and similar things are still relevant or useful or necessary? How, how do you see wine education going forward and slick does a lot of wine education so I want to hear your thoughts on this
0: right definitely I mean I think the future is what I'm trying to do and like this takes years to figure out right like I'm year three and I'm like I just brought on a like a strategist like a he's a he's a cool sales marketing dude he works for a big corporate company here in America and just like, how do we get more people drinking wine? That's essentially what the goal is with wine education. It's like to make people feel confident to buy more wine and to share it with people and to have that as the conduit for human connection. Like that's the ultimate goal and mission with slick. And so what do we have to do to do that? And it's like, we have to create for me, I think the goal is creating accessible content, creating accessible videos and much like, you know, what food and wine does, which is, I always laugh at food and wine because it's not really about the wine at all. And like, (laughs) if you even look at the, sorry, Ray Isle, if you're listening to this or whatever, but it's like, if you look at the website, I feel like people still don't know how to talk about wine in a way that a lot of people really understand. And so I think we have to really go over the basics again and have a platform where the basics are presented in a very matter of fact way, much like the diabetes example, like not getting into geekdom right away. We'll get there eventually, but like, we need to all be on the same foundational layer. And Slick is very much trying to create that, like, okay, like I want to learn about wine. Yeah. There's some basic videos that everyone has sort of does so like, you know, wine folly does this too, or it's like, what is wine? And yeah, like those videos can be helpful, But then we need to start asking sort of more relevant questions and to different kinds of people. And like, I can sit here all day and talk about my opinion about things or teach people things. But I think bringing also a diverse group of people to talk about, okay, like you've worked as a a supplier for thirty years. You've seen wine change in America for thirty years. What does that look like? Or, okay, you teach WSCT in Central America. Like, what does the wine culture look like in Mexico or Venezuela or Guatemala? Right. Like, those conversations are way, are way more interesting to me, and I think interesting to a, a wider swath of people. So bringing in wine where it's like, yes, like there is some teaching involved. And like, yes, there is a little bit of a baseline that people should know to understand the conversations a little bit better, but really just connecting wine with people in a broader aspect. That's not just interviewing winemakers. So that's a lot of what we're going to be doing with Slick is bringing in lots of different kinds of people. I've made a lot of connections, you know, working here in Chicago. So we'll just have people who are sommeliers in restaurants and asking them, would you take court of master sommeliers? Do you think this is worth it? Right. Or working with WSET educators saying is like passing WSET a sommelier. Does that make you a sommelier? Like I think things that people get very confused. So if we can do this in black and white, very straightforward on a platform where it's all presented nicely, and then we can get into some cooler conversations, that's what's the stuff that really excites me. And I think is helpful. And, you know, is are these conventional certifications like WSET relevant? I think it just depends on what your goal is. Like, if you want to work in wine, if you want to work for a distributor, an importer, work in restaurants, you should probably take either Quartermaster sommeliers or WSET just so you know what the heck is going on and what people are talking about. But you don't need it, but I would advise to do it. But if that's not your goal, if you don't want to work in wine, I don't think you need to do any of those things. I think you could just consume free content online, go to your local wine shop, hang out, listen to your favorite wine podcast. All of these things are essentially free and that would be much better for you and you would get what you wanted out of it.
1: I think that's a really good point. I mean, the the fact that people are confused, you know, what, what does having a WSET diploma mean versus, you know, being certified at the court of master sommelier, things like that. I think, I think you're right. You've hit on a really important note there. People aren't just confused about wine. They're confused about wine people. So uh, which makes our uphill climb even more difficult. So I'm a little more depressed now than I was when we started this. conversation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. The goal of this podcast, right. And make you more depressed by the end. Perfect.
1: Exactly. But I think what you're pointing to and and what we've spoken about so much throughout the conversation is getting people connected and whatever it takes to connect them, whether we connect them because they're different from each other or we connect them because they're the same or however we do it is going to be what solves sort of the conundrum of, of where we are in the wine world right now. So that's it's a really, this has been such an interesting topic and I will let you go, but I'm just going to ask you for the heck of it because this is Italian wine podcast, as you pointed out, and we've only talked about French wines. What's your favorite Italian wine? If you were going to crack open a bottle, what would you have? Hmm. I haven't asked that question in a long time. I just thought I would ask you.
0: In the spirit of like, you know, talking about slick and like what we do. I think um the Elena Walk wines are all wonderful. Good choice. Yeah, they're all just like 20 bucks or less for all the entry level stuff. And I think it also introduces a really interesting conversation where it's like, yeah, they make a Pinot Grigio from Alto Adige. This is typical. This is classic, right? And there's something you can learn from a professional standpoint from that. But then they also make Mueller-Thurgau. And you're like, what the hell is Mueller-Thurgau? You know? And it's like you start going down this rabbit hole and you start looking at a map of Italy and you go, oh, my God, you're so close to Slovenia and Austria when you're in this part of Italy. And I think it just kind of can open the door really easily of like, yeah, there's something super entry level, something super enjoyable. You don't have to think twice about it. But then, yeah, you can have a like 100% Merlot. You go, wow, I didn't even think, you know, a lot of people would go, I don't know. They made just Merlot in Northern Italy, right? Uh, and then they have higher level stuff. The Above the Cloud series that they do, which is, I think, one of their highest level wines, are uh, just like beautiful. Like those wines are stunning. So it's like there's a little bit of something for everyone and there's a lot of doors to be opened. So I think Elena Walk's wines are just really exciting.
1: Well, I I love Elena Walk's cantina. I love her wines. I love the fact that it's women-owned. Her daughters are are coming into taking over the business now too. So it's going to remain women-owned and women-run for, for quite a long time. This, the story behind it is excellent. And the wines, as you said, are surprising. They are easy to confront if you haven't had Italian wines before. And you know that you like, you know, a Merlot. So you can have an Italian Merlot from the mountains, you know, as opposed to sort of an Italian Merlot from Tuscany, which is going to be completely different. So sure. yes, excellent choice. I'm very happy I asked you that. <laughs> uh, and I, I do love a women owned and women run cantina. So that was a perfect oh, yeah. answer. Uh,
0: same, but, I feel the same way.
1: Marie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think this conversation was you know, exciting and interesting. I love your point of view and we wish you all the best with Slick. I know I'll be keeping my eye on it and I hope others will as well. So good luck and thank you so much.